she saw him leave that morning, but he didn't come back that afternoon. He didn't show up that night. Nobody heard from him. The teen's body was found in a rolled up gym mat in a high school in 2013. His death ruled accidental. Say my name and remember what you've done. Your hurricane has blackened out the sun. You can't continue to kill unarmed black people and get away with it. But if Kendrick did die of an accident, how, with all that distrust, how could you even ever show that? But then on the flip side, is they didn't treat it like it, it could have been a homicide. Lowndes County Sheriff Ashley Polk announced officials were reopening the investigation. Only angle is to find justice for my son. You can just tell death had come through our family and it just settled. You are currently listening to season three of Ashes to Ash TV, the investigation of Kendrick Johnson. Episode five, Dr. Anderson. We sat down with Marcus Coleman, the spokesperson for the Johnson family. This scenario about him, you know, storing shoes in the middle of a mat and, and you know, crawling up, trying to shimmy down the core of a mat with a diameter, I believe is somewhere around 14 or something and Kendrick's shoulders stretch well over 19. Preschoolers find out you can't fit square pegs and round holes. The ridiculous theory about him retrieving the shoe, I, I, I can't remember exactly when that started, but yeah, very early. I then questioned Dr. Anderson who performed the second and third autopsies. And did they ever come up with an explanation for why in this case of positional asphyxia that might have not the, that the why the lungs might not have had that did they ever explain that to you or no no well actually we offered to send them all our information the photos and findings and so forth and they basically the state medical examiners indicated that they were not interested in looking at any of that at all they didn't even want to see the pictures they didn't want to see our findings what about because like at some point like the doj had taken over have you ever been contacted by anyone to take a look at your findings yeah in fact the doj was got involved a couple of years after that mm -hmm. and yeah i gave deposition we had conferences with doj they came down to i think it was orlando yeah they came down to orlando and we had a half a day meeting with them went over everything in the photos and so forth so uh, yeah and i believe that they actually had a second pathologist review our findings and he agreed basically that with me that this was uh, not a positional asphyxia and of course we had the evidence of the trauma to the neck by that time so he agreed it was uh, blunt force to the neck. So two of the people I had been talking to that have really brought a lot of information to the forefront about the African-American community within Valdosta was a professor at Valdosta State University and the coordinator of the Mary Turner Project. One of the examples of racism in the history of Valdosta was Mary Turner herself. So I wanted to talk to both of them about their experiences learning about this lynching and what impact it has on today. So I also just want to warn everybody that throughout this episode, there are descriptions of lynchings and other crimes against African Americans. So if this is a sensitive topic for you, I just want to give you a heads up so you can prepare yourself for this information. I think it's important that we all bear witness to these cases, even if they're from the past, because I think it helps make sure we don't repeat this behavior. So I still think it's important to talk about it in the detail in which it was shared with me. We sit down with Thomas, a professor at Valdosta State. Valdosta in particular is known largely for two things. We are known for high school football and we are known for Mary Turner. 
And while we have a history, the whole entire area of Southwest Georgia was a slave holding region with everything else during slavery, more immediately came the racial violence that happened after slavery, after Reconstruction happened. White people, known as redeemers, sought to regain control of the population. And so to do that, they wanted to kind of get a handle on black lives and black bodies and the black vote. And so they started all these restrictions that we end up knowing as Jim Crow. And the extra legal version of that was murder, was lynching and things like that. In 1918, we had our most infamous case of that. Actually, it was over in Brooks County, right next door to Lowndes County, where we are now, where a local plantation owner, Hampton Smith, was using debt peonage labor, which was very common at the time. White law enforcement would arrest black defendants for incredibly minor, even almost non-existent things, fine them for whatever they were charged with. And then white people who owned major farms, especially turpentine camps and things like that, would come and pay their fine and they would be forced to go with the white person to work as essentially slave labor to work off the fine that the white people paid. And that debt peonage was a way to kind of get around the ban on slavery, but it was incredibly common around here, especially in one of our major industries was turpentine. And the turpentine industry in North Florida and South Georgia was notorious for this. And so this guy, Hampton Smith in Brooks County, was one of these debt peonage farmers who had a group of workers that he had bought off of the county. And was incredibly cruel because of course you could be. I mean, they're not regular employees. They cannot leave without penalty of arrest again. So he was incredibly cruel and one of the workers there, a guy named Sidney Johnson. We also spoke with Mark Patrick George, the coordinator for the Mary Turner Project about this. There was a 19 year old person who didn't grow up enslaved and probably like a lot of, of us when we were 19, we were invincible or we just wouldn't tolerate certain things. His name is Sidney Johnson. He was bailed out of jail and then had to work off that bail money with a guy named Hampton Smith in Brooks County who abused him, refused to pay him <clears throat> and Sidney Johnson killed him. Shot him and killed him and in retribution for that, Brooks County went on a lynching rampage. And so he went on the run and then the argument was that there was a coup attempt to kill this white farmer that implicated all these other players, including Hayes Turner and Mary Turner, Will Head and some other people. And there was just a killing rampage, uh, which was pretty common, where if you were black, you were a target. And it went on for about a week. Sidney Johnson was caught in Valdosta and killed uh, on South Lee Street and then drug to Morven, which is probably 17 miles away behind a car, taken to a church called Campground Church. You can visit yourself and burned. They lynched another person at that church as well. And that church still meets. Killing at least eight people, probably as many as 13. One of them, most famously, was a woman named Mary Turner. And that part of the case got the most attention because that was more rare while thousands of black men were lynched across the South in between the 1880s and the 1930s, the lynching of women happened. It was at least semi-regular, but it, but it was rarer to be sure. And Mary Turner's story 
got put in the national media because of an investigation by Walter White and the NAACP in which he kind of told everyone that Mary Turner was uh, eight months pregnant when she was lynched, that instead of being hung by the neck, as most people who were lynched were, that she was hung upside down by her feet, that she was set on fire until her clothes were burned off. Then the mob took a hunting knife, cut open her abdomen, pulled out the fetus, stomped it into oblivion on the ground and while she was still alive. And then and finally all took turns shooting her until she was dead. Nobody was ever held accountable. A lot of times people think it was kind of the riffraff, white riffraff or the white trash of the day. These were prominent citizens. It was the postmaster. It was leaders in the community of Brooks County. And, and Brooks County was the lynching capital of Georgia many years. It had more lynchings per capita than any other county. They lynched people on Christmas Day. So this is just what people did. And that story made the area notorious. And even though technically speaking, that lynching happened on the other side of the county line, plenty of Valdosta people were involved. Valdosta was the dateline on all of the newspaper stories about it because we are the hub city of this area. And we have become synonymous with that instance of racial violence ever since. And there is a way, I think, that Valdosta and the region could have divested themselves of that reputation through better racial behavior over the years, but they come by it honestly. I mean, we really haven't fixed a lot of those problems. And again, it was 1918, so my grandmother was 18 and my grandfather's probably 22, 23. I think that really puts it into perspective when you say that yeah. kind of stuff to people because they realize that that impacts you, yeah. even. The country's never dealt with what does it mean that humans uh, here just butchered people. And we're talking church-going pillars of the community mm -hmm. in many cases, right? The other thing that doesn't get discussed much is that it wasn't just that people were murdered, is that they were tortured in the most macabre ways. White folks regularly took body parts. They were this kind of sexual paranoia, they would castrate the victims. What are the long-term consequences for the black community and the white descendants of those folks? I think they're psychological and spiritual in nature, and they persist to this day. It may take more milder forms. It seems to me, given some of the inequality in our country and the brutality, that we should be outraged by so many things that we're not. It's almost as if we're not. We speak again with Dr. Anderson. I feel like that's such an extreme choice for a family to have to make to exhume a body. Can you talk a little bit about that process and getting the body exhumed so that you could take a look and then how long it was from when he was buried? Yeah, well there was somewhat of a delay, several months delay. And the reason the delay occurred was because the family was told erroneously that you needed to have permission of law enforcement and the courts and all this to exhume a body, which of course is nonsense, you don't need to do that. People in Florida, for instance, may have a, a loved one who's buried in Florida and decide they want to take the body back to up north to New Jersey, for instance. You know? so, 
it's very simple. The family just, you know, gets the funeral director to uh, exhume the body, put it on a plane, send it up, and that's all. You don't need any court orders or anything like that. And the same is true in Georgia. So basically what they were doing, they were stalling, and they convinced this family, who obviously, if the sheriff tells them you have to have all this stuff, I mean, most people are going to say, well, it must be true. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't true. So, But it did create a, a delay of several months in getting the body. But he had been embalmed well, so there was no situation where any more decomposition and so forth had occurred. And the tissues were actually better preserved now that he was embalmed. Can you explain that to people who don't understand that process? Because I was surprised when I first talked to you on the phone and you talked about how well preserved he was. What, what does embalming do and how does that preserve? If we do a biopsy, we put it in formaldehyde to basically preserve the tissue and get it in a state where we can then make sections and look at it under the microscope because it's formaldehyde and so forth. Well, formaldehyde is also the primary component of embalming fluid. So when you put that in, it does the same thing. It preserves the tissue once the embalming has occurred. So you don't get any further deterioration and so forth. So that was why it was fortunate that he was embalmed so well because the area that we discovered the trauma had not been looked at before by the first autopsy. They had not gone up high enough in the neck. So we were able to do that and we took microscopic sections of that and it showed tissue bleeding in the tissues and so forth. So it wasn't post-mortem or anything like that. We would have liked to examine the organs again, but the organs somehow had disappeared and were not with the body when we received the body. And since we received it in the casket, that means it wasn't there when he was buried. In Dr. Anderson's interview with CNN, he explained, But what Dr. Anderson did not find shocked them. When we got the body uh, for the second autopsy, that organs, the heart, lungs, liver, etc., were not with the body. The brain? The brain. They were all absent. Every organ from the top of Kendrick's head to his pelvis, gone. And his family had no idea. Kendrick's father, Kenneth, says, We have been let down again. And when we buried Kendrick, we thought we was burying Kendrick, not half of Kendrick. Uh, I'm not sure at this point who did not return the organs to the body, but I know when we got the body, the, the organs were not there. When someone buries someone, do they usually put the organs back in the body? Do they go in a box with the body, or how does that even work? Well, normally what happens is you put the organs either back in the body or in a bag with the same formaldehyde solution to preserve them in with the casket. Now, some hospitals, when they do autopsies, they actually keep all the organs and cremate them later. Okay. But many families don't realize that. They haven't been returned. But generally, medical examiners, for a number of reasons, they don't want to have to worry about that, getting rid of the organs. It's easier to send it back to the funeral home after you've done your sections. And you avoid the possibility of the families getting upset because all the organs weren't put back where they're supposed to be. I mean, you take whatever you need for examination, but you don't necessarily just keep all the organs. So when we opened the body of Kendrick Johnson, all that was there was newspaper filling the cavities. And the organs were not there. I know the attorneys and all spent months trying to figure out where they had gone, and nobody could ever explain where the organs had gone. We then asked Marcus. A lot of people talk about Kendrick's organs being gone, like the organ harvesting, and you know, I definitely know that's real and this is just my opinion here, I don't believe that's what happened here. Uh, I believe his organs were 
uh, discarded so we could not, so they thought, disprove the asphyxiation. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe the, of course, lack of oxygen would have shown in, in several organs. So when it comes to Kendrick's organs, the autopsy was done in the GBI lab. Yeah. And then there was a transporter that took the remains to the funeral home. Well, the funeral home says they never received the organs in the body. The GBI says they put it in the body. Mm -hmm. Autopsy is done, organs taken out, organs put back in. So Kendrick's organs are missing. The clothes that Kendrick wore that day have still never been found. All of Kendrick's nails on his fingers and thumbs were cut back to the point of bruising. This was just early on. Dr. Anderson continues. Until we opened the body, we didn't, we were looking for the, the container or bag or whatever that had the organs in it and it was not there. So even before you opened him, were you already thinking that they're probably not in him either? No, no, I assumed that they were going to be there. It was a medical examiner case. The practical reason is that the funeral home then has to worry about fixing the organs and so forth. And the medical examiner is through with it. And you don't want to have to mess around with all that essentially. So it's much easier to send the organs back unless you made him save a heart occasionally or a brain if there's a questionable diagnosis, but not all the organs. You don't want all that to worry about. That's the funeral director's problem once you send it. Yeah. So yeah, I assume since this was a medical examiner case, that, you know, that the organs would just be there. Absolutely. And is that a common practice to see somebody to have newspaper in them? Is that newspaper used commonly or had you ever seen that before? Oh, that's the first time I remember seeing newspaper. So, so you've been doing this since 1976, and <laughs> yeah. that's the first time you've seen newspaper. Have you, yeah. Had you ever even heard of that being a practice? Well, anything that would absorb the fluid, I suppose, any paper. I mean, usually there's like a cotton thing that they have, a fabric that they put in and absorb it. Uh, then usually the organs are in with it, so that helps absorb some of the stuff. So, so you've never heard a satisfying answer about where the organs ended up? No. Okay. And... When you say all the organs were missing, can you explain to people what that means? Because when I first heard it, I was like, oh, okay, I guess the heart was gone and the liver was gone, but it seems like even the esophagus and other things, can you explain what all was not there? Well, essentially, uh, yeah, there was, everything was gone. So even like the tongue, the esophagus, the lungs, yes, all of it. All of it. But the neck had been, not been dissected where we found the injury, which was way up at the angle of the jaw. Mm -hmm. and that had not been uh, dissected. So we dissected that area, and that's where the hemorrhage was found. And that's basically the conclusion that he died of a sudden death, mm -hmm. not a positional asphyxia death, but sudden death. And that because of that hemorrhage in the soft tissues there, means there was force applied, either a, an arm across or a blow or something that essentially caused the heart to stop. Because there's a structure called the carotid body, which basically feeds back and forth to the heart. Mm -hmm. And if your blood pressure goes too high, the carotid body senses that and slows the heart down. Okay. But compression of that area can cause the heart to actually slow to the point that it briefly stops. And sometimes in the situation, it doesn't restart. And I think that's probably what happened when, when some force was applied to that area enough to cause the hemorrhage that uh, basically the heart slowed down to a point that it, it did not recover or it was kept too long and didn't recover. The pressure was kept too long. Uh, that The heart basically didn't restart itself. I just wanted to break into the episode really quick and remind everybody to subscribe. You can subscribe right on the website, ashestoashtv.com, A-S-H-E-S-T-O-A-S-H-T-V. Com. If you subscribe, all that money just goes right back into helping us solve these cases, so it's much appreciated. 
If you don't have the ability to subscribe, no problem. We do keep the show up for free. We keep it this way because that's how we get in tips and solve these cases. If you can't afford to become a subscriber, you do get some extra special perks, which includes getting to see the episodes early, getting discounts on merchandise, getting to be part of our private Facebook subscriber group so you have a little closer access to the crew, and you also get to see some uncut and behind-the-scenes footage that's meant for only subscribers. If you don't have the ability to subscribe, no big deal. Please just help by sharing this content. The more people who look at these cases, the better chance we have of solving them. Now, back to the episode. We continue to speak with Thomas Ayeo. That happened in 1918. Decades later, in the 1950s, we had another infamous case where one of our sheriff's deputies beat uh, a black man to death while on duty, uh, just for sitting on a bench, that he didn't like him. And of course, nobody around here did anything about it because that was seen as, well, he had it coming. He, had, he was asking for it. You, you don't confront law enforcement in any way or, or they have a right to beat you to death. And so the federal government actually, in the early 50s, which is rare for the federal government at this time, brought civil rights charges against the officer. Now, he was acquitted because when you are being tried in front of a jury of your peers in 1950s Valdosta, that just means 12 white dudes you went to high school with. So he was acquitted. But those kinds of incidents are necessarily going to build mistrust of law enforcement. No one was ever held to account for any of the murders in the case of the Mary Turner saga, not just her murder, but all of the murders that happened in that rampage. Nobody was held account when, when the police were murdering people in the 1950s. Nobody has really ever been held account for these kinds of things. And so there is an inherent mistrust of law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Now, these incidents did end up generating, I think, real concern from the black population. We get our first branch of the NAACP shortly after the Mary Turner debacle runs its course. It had lain dormant for years, but we get a new branch of it after the police murder in the early 1950s. And our NAACP here has kind of gone back and forth depending on people's interest. But what we end up seeing with all of these acts of violence in Valdosta is official ugliness that produces no real consequences. Black activism trying to get them and white people largely just hoping it will go away. Not white people saying, well, he deserved it anymore. We're not kind of doing that anymore. I mean, there is a civility that exists that's kind of a faux civility that kind of lies on top of all of this, but just kind of pretending that people are overreacting, let's just calm down, let's just pretend this doesn't exist. And those two reactions are very steeped in a racial legacy that this place has never really been able to overcome. Back with Dr. Anderson, I ask. There wasn't like a full beating, but maybe something happened rather quickly. Is that what you're interpreting? Yes, or? yes. Okay. I'm just making sure I'm understanding correctly. Can you explain a little bit to people what a hemorrhage is and what that looks like? Well, basically, hemorrhage is when the blood, for some reason, goes outside the blood vessels and into the tissue. And that's usually caused by trauma, where the small blood vessels are broken because of a force that's basically damaged the tissue. So then the body, still pumping blood, causes that blood to go out into the soft tissues. And that's essentially hemorrhage. And it can be a lot of blood or it can be a relatively small amount of blood. 
And that's why I think that when the pressure was applied, the heart slowed down very quickly. So we didn't see a massive hemorrhage in that area, but we did see enough uh, because the heart stopped pretty quickly. Okay. So then you don't have blood pressure anymore, so it's not pushing it out into the tissues. Okay. So you may have only a small amount, uh, but we had fairly significant hemorrhage in the area. And we, of course, took all the pictures of that, and that was part of the thing that we wanted everyone to take a look at and see what they agreed. One thing that's really upsetting is Sheriff Polk was basically like, you can't figure anything out once a body's been buried for that long. My comment to that is that uh, where did the sheriff get his pathology training and where did he go to medical school? Marcus then explains. With what we believe happened to Kendrick, when his body was found, that's when the cover-up began. I don't think it was accidental that, you know, there were no booties, that, that booties worn by, you know, people in, entering and exiting the scene, that the coroner was called, what, five hours or so later. I don't think this was accidental. There's an old saying, professional thieves do professional work, and missing video surveillance. You know, these are things that take some strings to be pulled. So many times in the black community, in an underprivileged community, even though we have investigations, they're intentionally botched to make it appear as if you care. And that's why we're hoping that Sheriff Polk, you know, me and him seem to have a relationship, that uh, he's a man of his word. I then asked Dr. Anderson, you got the body and there's no organs in place. What's the next step? How do you investigate it when you don't have some of the major pieces? Well, it depends, because in this particular case, we did have the description uh, of the organs and everything was pretty normal and the lung weight actually was much more accurate that the medical examiner took because that was taken essentially fresh. So it wasn't a major issue, although I would have liked to have the histology to go along with it. One of the things we do in second autopsies is we look to see that a complete autopsy has been done. In other words, everything examined. Mm -hmm. We've had over the years a fair number of particularly law enforcement involved cases where, for instance, the back of the neck had not been dissected at the first autopsy uh, or some other area had not been dissected. And the importance of the second autopsy is then you go ahead and do those areas. Mm -hmm. And we have found over the years uh, probably at least a half a dozen situations where blunt force trauma to the back of the neck, which caused spinal cord injury, which you cannot see from the front, we have found that that was present. Is that a poor practice on a medical examiner's behalf that they're not checking that, or is that pretty? Is that just common practice? Well, it's in, in a suspicious death. It's not good practice to ignore that because you right. need that is that is clearly a situation where trauma can be applied without it being visible. Mm -hmm. Certainly not from the front. Yeah, and certainly not externally. You wouldn't see any bruising of the skin, for instance, if a, a blow or a knee or whatever is enough to basically injure the spinal cord. That can cause pretty much immediate immobilization and pretty rapid death after that. We've interviewed a few people who were in, went to the school board right after they found Kendrick's body because they all kind of converged there to, to hear from Sheriff Prime, who was the sheriff at the time. The family it basically states, and it seems like everybody who was in the room that day confirms that they were told it was an accident that day. So we're talking maybe eight hours after his body was found. Do you think that there's any way that that would have even been logical to be able to say that with any certainty? No.
Ashes to Ash is created by Ash Patino, Associate Producer, Kate Giordano, Production Manager and Co-Host, Bree Blankenfeld, Title Music, Bones, performed by Eight Graves. Subscribe on the website to receive commercial-free content, early access to episodes, uncut interviews, and discounted merchandise. Just go to ashestoashtv.com, www.ashestoashtv.com. If you have a tip or information, please email us at ashland57 at gmail.com, A-S-H-L-A-N-D-5-7 at gmail.com. We can keep you anonymous. If you know of a legal activity involving this case, please reach out to your local law enforcement. To follow us on Facebook, please go to Ashes to Ash True Crime. And on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, at Ashes to Ash TV.